Guys, I'm going I'm to just pray for us. We're going to pray, and then uh, we're jumping in. We're going to be in John 18 uh, today, and man, I'm excited. I'm thankful. I'm excited. We are hitting the end of the Gospel of John. John 18 is where um, the hours finally hit. Jesus is about ready to be arrested. Jesus is about ready to be taken. He's about ready to be flogged and beaten. He's about ready to be hung up on a cross. He's about ready to die, be stabbed in the side, and then raised from the dead. This is where we're at in the story of the Gospel of John. So that last song that we sung is just so on the nose for what we're doing. This is a big deal, you know. So I just want to take a moment, a moment just of silence, some reflection, and I'm going to pray for us, and then we're going to jump into the Word of God. We're going to jump into the sermon. Um, yeah. Father, uh, it's not pleasant words or beautiful speech or anything like that that transforms hearts and minds. It's really the Spirit of God breaking in through the heart of men. That's what transforms us. That's what renews us. So there is nothing I can say here today that can do anything supernatural. But it is through your word and your spirit. So I pray today that we would have open hearts, receptive hearts, open eyes, open ears to receive the good news today and be transformed that this would be actual good news that it would change our thinking change our minds change the way we believe and behave you're our king you're our god you're our lord bless the people in this room in jesus name amen this is your first time here you'll probably look around don't have a kids ministry, we have kids everywhere. Um, we find that a blessing, we're thankful for that. We are excited that they are here. So that's what you're gonna see. So you're gonna hear it. So I'm thankful for these children. I'm thankful to hear the coos and the cars and them reading and them following along. Such a blessing for me to be able to talk and like have my daughter wanna sing the songs that we sing. That's an amazing thing. It's an amazing thing for me to like see them pat on boxes acting like it's a drum, like with Kurt being up here. This is an amazing thing for me. So like when we do ministry and we see things happen and we're walking out through this stuff, you can think that ministry only happens here behind a pulpit while somebody is preaching. If we are Christians, we are portable temples. If we are portable temples, then we are missionaries in our context. That means when you're at Kroger, that means when you're at the gas station, that means when you are even at home talking to your neighbor, we have an opportunity and an ability to be close to the dying and dead world and be Jesus to them. Because this is the, the amazing thing that breaks through when it comes to verses 18 and 19 and then the resurrection that we see in 20. Is that we now 
have the Spirit of God if we're Christians dwelling in us and we can go out. So we are starting a new sermon series today. This hour has finally come, the time of Jesus' arrest, his conviction, the cross, the resurrection. Jesus is going to drink the cup of God's wrath. He's going to do that at the cross. This is the focal point of the entire gospel story. This is where we see the teaching of Jesus finally come to a head. The teaching that he is truly God incarnate. That Jesus is the way, that he is the truth, that he is the life. That narrative that is painted by the first words in the Gospel of John. This should not come as a surprise as we have been over a year in this Gospel. We have been banging this drum ever since we started the Gospel of John. What is the purpose of this book? Do you guys remember? What is the purpose of this book? John lays it out, and we see this at the end of the Gospel of John. It says, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of disciples, but they were not written in this book. But these were written, so everything in the Gospel of John, these were written so that you may believe that Jesus was the Christ, the Son of God, and having believed in him, you would have life in his name. So the purpose of the Gospel of John is to believe that Jesus is God incarnate, God in flesh, the Word of God. That is what the Gospel of John is about. And John is about 90% all new content in the Gospels, right? So you have Matthew, you have Mark, and you have Luke. John also gives an account of the biography of Jesus. So when you hear the Gospels, this is all biographical books. So when you see Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you can know that these are the Gospels and these are biographies of, like, Jesus' life, right? And we come to know that John was the last one that was written. So John knows that the other three Gospels have been circulating. So he gives an account of what he experienced during his life and ministry with Jesus. Being in the inner circle of Jesus. Being close to Christ. So John is giving his unique perspective. And John 18 starts very interesting. Verse 1, it says... When Jesus had spoken these words, and what were those words? Those were the words in between John 13 all the way through 17. This was his teaching and what we call the theologians will call the farewell discourse. This is Jesus' last big teaching before he goes to the cross. So here in the Gospel of John, it said, When Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples across the brook Kidron, where there was a garden, which he and his disciples entered. So it's a beautiful thing about the Word of God. It's a beautiful thing about the Bible that we have. In the Gospels, the other ones, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, it goes into great detail about the mental state of Jesus, what he was going through when he was in the garden. We see his disciples failing to stay awake. We remember that Jesus was sweating drops of blood, that Jesus was wishing and saying, God, please don't let me drink this cup, but not my will, but your will be done. We see all of this, but John omits them, not because they're not important, but because they have been told. John shows us the marrow in between the bones of the gospel narrative. He's showing us a different perspective. That's why a lot of things are a little bit different vantage point. But if you want to write these verses down, these are where the garden scene is at in the other gospels. So in 
Matthew, it's in Matthew 26. You can write that down and look at it this week. In Mark, it's Mark 14. You can write that down this week and go and look in it. In Luke 22. So Matthew 26, Mark 14, and Luke 22. We see Jesus in the garden. We see how he's thinking. We see how he's moving. We see how he's operating. And this week, you can dig into these verses. You can look around. You can grab a pen, grab paper, make some observations. This is good things. Make connections. You can see a beauty in this book. Like, for example, I'm going to reread the first verse. It's chock full of connections. Remember, every word in the Bible was written for a reason. When Jesus had spoken these words, verse 1 says, he went out with his disciples to the brook Kidron, where there was a garden, which he and his disciples entered. That's what we see. And mind you, it's still Passover. That's how long we've been in the Gospel of John. <laughs> Months ago, we were talking about Passover, and now we're still here at Passover. That this is a Jewish feast, if you remember. That it's to be celebrated, and we're remembering God saved the Jewish people from slavery of the Egyptians. What they would do is they would sacrifice a lamb and they would put it over the doorpost. This is in Exodus. And, and the angel of death would pass over the Jewish people if they were covered by the blood of the lamb. Death would literally pass over them because the blood that covered them. Well, this is still Passover. And there was about 250,000, 250,000 lambs slaughtered for this Passover in Israel. Do you understand how much blood that is? It's like 2.5 million pounds of blood. I'm not even joking. I did the math. It's, that's a lot of blood. And this is Thursday night going into Friday morning. So imagine slaughtering of 250,000, a quarter of a million lambs slaughtered. And there was a drain that ran down from the temple altar down into the Kidron ravine below. This is what washed the blood sacrifices away from the city. So when Jesus and his disciples crossed this brook, it was blood red with the sacrifices from the previous day. During the morning, the smell, what it looked like, what it was like. So Jesus walks through the blood of the sacrifices that will shortly be obsolete. Do you hear me? That sacrifice, hours from then, will be obsolete. A reminder in the front of his mind what he was going to do. The task that he was set out to do. The cup that he was supposed to drink was right before him. 250,000 lambs. Those lambs could not cover the sins that Jesus was going to cover in a mere hours. Every year. Thousands upon thousands upon thousands upon thousands upon thousands of sacrifices. Thousands upon thousands upon thousands upon thousands of rituals. 
altars and incense and religiosity becoming obsolete overnight. This is what John means when he screams, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. We see that in John 1. It's a big deal. Huge deal. Massive deal. Jesus' time is now, and he does not shrink away from what is about ready to happen. He does not hide, and he knows because he is sovereign over everything in existence. And that's just one little tidbit. That's just looking up where they're talking about. Like, why did the gospel writer put, they crossed over the brook, right? So you just look that up. You have observations. Next one, he talks about garden. It's a fascinating thing. It says, also where there was a garden which he and his disciples entered. This is a fascinating thing. So the Lord deliberately chose the Garden of Gethsemane. He went there with his disciples, and he went there deliberately. But we believe that the Bible is one unified story, right? We talk about this. This isn't just 66 unseparated books. Starts in Genesis, ends in Revelation, starts in a garden, ends in a city. Jesus, the one holding everything together. Jesus, the cross that we look to. This is what the Bible is about. So the Bible is full of connections over and over again. So think, when we read garden, when's the last time we heard garden? Where in the biblical story have we seen garden? We, if we think, we can look back all the way in Genesis, where humanity was created. It's a beautiful thing. Humanity created in the image and likeness of God without sin, walking with God, planted in a garden where God was our father, and we were his representatives on earth. But sin entered. Mankind fell. But where Adam fails, Jesus succeeds. Okay? In Eden, Adam hides from God when he sins. In Gethsemane, Jesus prays to God. He goes to him. He communicates to him. He talks to him. In the garden, Adam eats the fruit he shouldn't have, and it condemned the entire human race. But in this garden, Jesus will drink the cup that he shouldn't have to redeem his people. This is why I'm so... We have to be scripture-saturated. We have to be a prayerful people. We have to read this book, okay? Because if we just dig in this book and then pick and choose what we want to see and what we want to live and then live these weird, goofy lives separated from who Jesus is and what he has accomplished, we miss so much. This is why I want us to look at the book. This is why I want us to read the Bible. This book gets amazing and deeper with age and time, and it's about an amazing Savior at the center our setting is a blood-filled brook full of blood of soon-to-be obsolete sacrifices. And the light of the world goes to pray at night in the garden, soon to be apprehended. And this leads to the setup. If you look inside, we're walking through. I have four points. So we're talking about the setup now that the gospel continues and said, Now Judas, who betrayed him, 
also knew the place, for Jesus often met there with his disciples. Verse 3, so Judas, having procured a band of soldiers and some officers and some chief priests and the Pharisees, went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. Jesus goes to a place where he has been going all Holy Week to do ministry in the temple, and then he would come back to the garden to pray. He would spend time with his father in this garden. He would spend time with his disciples in fellowship. So Judas knew where he was going. And Jesus wanted Judas to find him. Jesus' hour has come. And it is now here. The true Passover lamb was to be sacrificed for the sins of the whole world. It seems as if almost the whole world was represented here in this garden on this fateful night. You had the Romans and you had the religious. You had the Gentile and you had the Jew. And Judas wasn't passive about the betrayal. He didn't just fail Jesus. He was a treacherous, treasonous traitor. Like Satan in the garden, Judas was there in the garden. The world was set on taking the author of life out says, having procured a band of soldiers, some of the officers of the chief priests and the Pharisees went there with lanterns, torches, and weapons. A little bit of digging, a band of soldiers means a Roman cohort. It's a tenth of a legion. So a legion is about 3,000 to 6,000 Roman soldiers, right? So a cohort would be about three to 600 men. It wasn't four guys coming to get Jesus. This is a man that raised Lazarus from the dead. This is a man that served thousands of people. It's a man who claimed to be God. We're not coming with two people. And that was just the Romans. There were some officers, the chief priests, and the Pharisees. So hundreds of people are coming to get Jesus. And know this. This response wasn't for healing people. It wasn't. It wasn't for feeding people either. It wasn't. It wasn't for the good works that he did. It wasn't. Jesus was being looked at to be put to death because he was a threat. In Rome, you worship the emperor. And a man claiming to be king is a threat to the Romans. And for the Jews, a man claiming to be God is blasphemous. He should be put to death according to their law. So, this man is sought out by the world for his divine claims. This is why the world comes to destroy Jesus. Not for good works, but for him claiming divinity. He was executed in the foreknowledge of God by his own will and his own power. He allowed it to happen, but they came after him because he claimed to be God. The world comes after the author of life and the light of the world. And they come after him with lanterns, torches, and weapons. So I want you to please, for a moment, get here in your mind. For us to understand the gravity of what's going on, allow your imagination to go with me. Imagine your teacher. Imagine your friend. Imagine your savior your brother, 
Imagine you having a meal together. Imagine he spent time washing your feet. Imagine him going over his last teaching. Imagine you crossing a blood-stained ground at night. Smell of blood so distinct. And imagine the sound of hundreds of people with torches coming your way. You see the betrayal of a man who you have spent three years with. You see Judas. You see the world coming against you. You hear the footsteps. They're expecting you to run. They're expecting you to fight. They're expecting you. Why would they come with weapons unless they were looking to subdue you or crush a rebellion that they probably knew was going to take place? The world wants to extinguish the light of the world. So they go after him in darkness. It doesn't surprise Jesus. It doesn't sway him. He knew that Judas knew where he was at. He is sovereign over all of this. He knew that he was going to get betrayed. He knew this was going to happen. So let us learn from our Savior. What does he do right before he knows he's going to die? He knows this. What does he do in the time from dinner till now? He serves. He loves. He prays. He leads. He leads those who are his. He leads his flock. He is a good shepherd. He is the Savior. This is what our king does. He is our Savior. It's the third point. When Jesus, right here, pay attention to this. When Jesus, then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, Whom do you seek? And they answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said to them, I am he. Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. When Jesus said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. So he asked them again, Who do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus answered, I told you I am he, and if you seek me, then let these men go. This was to fulfill the word that he had spoken. Of those whom you gave me, I have not lost one. None of this surprised Jesus. Church, I need you to know this. Our God is sovereign over all. He is in control over all. It, this doesn't surprise Jesus one bit. He's going to willingly lay down his life, and he is going to drink the cup of wrath, God's wrath, so that you don't have to. It's the reality of the gospel. He is in total control. Jesus isn't taken by surprise. He's never caught off guard. It isn't the people who are going to come and arrest him that are going to kill him. Jesus said in John earlier, no one takes it from me, but I lay down my life at my own accord. I have the authority to lay it down, and I have the authority to take it up again. This charge I receive from my Father. Even though the world is coming against him, they are not going to kill him. He is willingly handing over his life for us. 
Jesus is not surprised. He asks hundreds of men, whom do you seek? Who are you looking for? Who is it that you want? They say Jesus of Nazareth. And this is why being scripture saturated is so important. He says, I am he. I am he. It's actually a poor translation because it just says in the Greek, ego e me. means I am. So Jesus just said, I am. Who are you seeking? Jesus of Nazareth. I am. All right? See, now the Jewish readers would be hip and savvy to everything going on here, to what John is really communicating. If it wasn't evidenced by the soldiers falling down at the utterance of I am, this is why we need to know the word of God. Jesus says I am, they fall back on the ground. This is a call back to the divine encounters through all scripture. Mind you, it is Passover season. Passover. Passover. This is the story that was on the tongue of everybody, in the ears of everybody this week. Even the Romans who were there would know what was going on during Passover. It was the story about how God would come and save his people. He would save them from an oppressive regime of the Egyptians. When Moses talks to God, he says, who shall I say sent me? God replies from the burning bush, I am who I am. So Jesus is saying, you're looking for Jesus of Nazareth? In reality, I am the I am of the Old Testament. He is revealing that he is the God who destroyed Pharaoh and the Egyptians about the story that everybody's talking about. Every single story that is being uttered this week. Jesus, in the dark of night, is saying, I am that one. It is God who crushes the oppressors. It is God who judges the wicked. So we can't miss on this context. The Passover meal had just been eaten. This story is fresh. So it makes sense why they fall down. Imagine the God who crushes oppressors and the Romans coming to go and apprehend a man and he just said, I am. That's why they were shocked. Here they are, hoping to just grab a miracle working homeless teacher. Sure, I've heard stories. He's raised the dead. He's healed the sick. He's fed thousands. But this man's claiming divinity, so we need to kill him. And when Jesus sees hundreds of people stomping with torches and clubs, he doesn't run. He doesn't hide. He confronts these men in this moment because this moment was the moment he was sent for. They all fall down. And this is what will happen to every single one of us. Whether you believe or not. They all fall down. Either we kneel in rebellion or we kneel in reverence. That is the reality. Philippians 2, it says this, that at the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow of those in heaven and those on earth and those who are under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. 
What these soldiers experience is nothing out of the realm of what is going to happen at the end of history. We all bow. Either we bend the knee in reverence or rebellion. And this may seem harsh. I understand it. I get it. But don't let the reality of sin cloud our mind. We have no problem when lawbreakers get punished through the justice system. We just watched a trial that was very popular. And we saw justice get served. And we want to see justice as humans. So we have no problem when lawbreakers get punished. And we can sit there and say, guess what? I'm not perfect. No one is. Well, if God is perfect and holy, and he says that he refuses to be around unholy and rebellion, do you think we can please God in our current state? This is why the gospel is such good news. The little preview here. And we see this in the next verse. Verse 7, it says, So he asked them, Whom do you seek? And Jesus said, And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus answered, I told you I am he. So if you seek me, let them go. If you seek me, then let them go. Jesus in this moment wanted his disciples to have safe passage. He wanted to be taken out, but he wanted his disciples to be safe and left. Jesus is going to the cross, and he alone is going to the cross. His disciples can't pay for the sins of the world. They are sinners themselves. He does not deserve this death, but he willingly chose it to redeem and save his disciples. Jesus pays for our debt. So he's not some masochistic, angry deity who's unconcerned with humanity. He's not some absentee father who only shows up every once in a while. He actively works in the affairs of men to make sure that his disciples are taken care of and equipped for the work that he has given them to do. And how is he going to accomplish that? What does he do? He drinks the wrath of God that we deserve. That's the sermon in the sentence. That is the point that I'm trying to make. He drinks the cup so we do not have to. Jesus drinks the wrath of God that we deserve. This is the great exchange. He traded my sin for his righteousness. And the solution is even found buried in the foolishness of the disciples. The last bit of this says, Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew back and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. So Jesus said to Peter, put your sword into your sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? So the band of soldiers and their captain and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him. I find Simon Peter fascinating. I just do. Like Remember when I did that little thought experiment and we were talking about being in the garden, we were looking out and we were thinking about torches and all those people coming towards you, hundreds of people. Here's a man who cannot stay up with Jesus. 
Bro falls asleep three times. He's like, you can't stay with me. You can't stay with me. Wake up, wake up, wake up. In the middle of the night, hundreds of people just show up. Torches and landers, clubs. He's game. He is so ready to go. And I find it fascinating that, like, he can't pray, but he can cut off a man's ear. Man, that's me, right? Once again, getting teary-eyed up here behind the pulpit. That's me. Jesus wants me to stay up all night and pray with him. And I say, nah, I want to take down governors and like this is, I don't want any of this. This is wrong. I'm going to pick it and I'm going to do all this stuff. I want to do political things, revolution. He said, bro, I want you to pray with me. That's what I asked you to do. Stay up with me and pray. Don't you know that this is how the battle is won? Don't you know communication is what I'm giving you? That we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but principality and powers. That I've given you my spirit. I'm like, yeah, but I'm, I'm down to fight. I'm ready. Let's go. And that's, man, it's just a fascinating thing. Because even though this is 2,000 years ago, I see the same thing happening today. The Romans are the enemy of God. They want power, right? They can't have an uprising. They can't have another king. They must maintain order. So they actively suppress and crush anything that stands in their way for their quest of power. That's what the Romans do. Hey, shut up, Jesus. I don't want to hear from you. That's what they do, right? Same thing with the Jewish folks. They want truth. They want to be right. They will work and toil and try to be right. They want power as well. They're zealous for the truth. But it doesn't matter who they kill or what stands in their way. They're just trying to be right by their own means. Two groups. 100% the enemies of God. They're wrong. We're not supposed to search for power or fight for just being right with no love. Jesus Christ is the source of power. Jesus Christ is the source of truth. He is truth. Looking for power and truth apart from Christ is unholy, demonic, fleshly, and dangerous. Righteousness is more important than rightness. And then you have Peter. Jesus repeatedly tells this man how he's going to die over and over and over again. He says, they're going to take me, they're going to kill me. And Jesus constantly is saying, no, they're not. I'm going to be here. And Peter is such an any means necessary kind of guy, he hacks off the high priest servants here. Like hundreds of people. Hundreds of people. Jesus has just willingly gave himself up, got the disciples this free passage to go, unharmed, unarrested, and Peter says, attack now! And cuts off a guy's ear. And like, how often do I look at God's plan for my life and see him working and say, yeah, who cares about that, man? Let's just, let's just go. I'm just going to do this. <laughs> Not even thinking. 
Like, we know Peter loves God. He loves Jesus. He doesn't stand for the injustice and wickedness in the world. He wants to see that crushed. So Peter takes action. He seeks to align himself with all that's true. He's on the winning team. But in his mind, he still feels like he needs to defend Jesus. Our God is sovereign, people. Peter fails to understand God's purpose. Has anyone tried to do the right thing but did it the wrong way? I know I have. And that's why I so am thankful that Peter was written in the Gospels. I do see myself in him so much. Peter was prepared to fight. Hundreds of people. There are 12 people here. That's 50 people apiece. I've done a lot of math for this sermon. 50 people. He's got a little sword. 50 people. It's just not going to happen. But maybe he thought, well, I have Jesus, right? So this is no problem. Just like we can defeat all these people right now. He probably was thinking back to the story of Jericho and Joshua and or like Samson and the jawbone of a donkey. Like, man, God's killed thousands of people and like destroyed nations that were coming up against him. We're good. We're fine. We got this. Then Jesus turns and look at Peter and says, put your sword in your sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? The true path to victory is not the sword, but its submission to God's will. Do you hear me? The true path to victory is not a sword, but its submission to God's will. Victory isn't fighting. It's forgiveness at the cross. Victory doesn't come from wrestling against flesh and blood, but from drinking of the wrath of God. This is what Jesus did for us. The Father gave Jesus the cup of his wrath. This is the purpose that he has come for. And Peter was trying to fight a godly battle with earthly means. Jesus came to drink the wrath of God. This is why the gospel is such good news. A few weeks back, we talked about the cross proves that God is faithful. Because he said he will leave he will not leave sin unpunished. We can know he's truthful because of the cross. He doesn't leave sin unpunished. God punishes the sin of his creation on the creator. Jesus is going to the cross to drink the cup of God's wrath. And remember, every knee shall bow. Either we bend the knee in reverence or rebellion, but know this, that the cup of wrath for sin and disobedience is either drunk by Jesus Christ or is drunk by you. That's reality. You drink it yourself. And I can't get away from this point in the text that if Jesus was supposed to just feed people, he would have. If he was supposed to just heal people, he would have. If he was supposed to just teach people, he would have. But Jesus himself says the reason that he came was to drink the cup of wrath that was destined for sinners. Jesus is holy. He is perfect. God in flesh. The only one who is sinless. The only one who can drink it. The only one who can satisfy the wrath of God. 
do religion studies and histories, all other religions show you how to get to God. Do my teaching and this is how you gain enlightenment. Follow this path and this is how you get there. God came to man through Christ. He is the way, the truth, the life. No one gets to the Father except through him. Other religions will say, let me show you. Jesus says, I am he. I am the path. They weren't seeking to kill him for good works, but claiming he is God. So, church, many of us can be like Peter and we can pick up our swords and try to fight the Lord's battles in the way that the Lord hasn't asked us to. But what has he asked us to do? Great commandment, great commission. Love God, love people, teach others to do the same. Since Jesus succeeded where Adam failed in the garden, we now have the ability to represent Jesus on this earth. We are the portable temples if we trust in God. If we trust in God and believe in his sacrifice and he is our Passover lamb and his blood cleanses us and washes us, then we have the light of the world in us. And we will come, and the world will come with torches and lanterns and clubs in the dead of night, but we will stand victorious because our Savior conquered sin and death. This is the gospel. This is the good news. Jesus drank the wrath of God so we don't have to. We have been saved and giving new life, and we have been given freedom if we trust in him. If we look at our life and say, Lord, these things that I've done have been active, treasonous, traitorous things that have separated me from your true joy and hope. I repent of them and turn and trust you to redeem me and restore me and make me new and give me the life that you say that you're giving me because eternal life is knowing God and knowing God now. And Christian, if you believe in him, you have been saved now, given new life now, and you can have freedom now, unshackled from the chains of the flesh, looking towards new Jerusalem with eyes, knowing that our king is coming back to judge the living and dead and will crush Satan and sin underneath his feet. This is what we have hope in. This is how we can stand firm. This is how we can raise our hand up and sing these songs because we know that we have a living God who will come redeem and restore and renew us. I'm going to pray, and then we're going to do communion. I need to get me a bandana. Pat my head. I'm sweating up here. Jesus, there is nothing I can do here that can transform anybody, but you can. Father, I pray that there would be hope and repentance. I pray that we would lift our hands up, that we would enjoy and join in communion, remembering the death, burial, and resurrection of our Lord and Savior, understanding that we are made new and have newness of life because you have redeemed us and restored us and made us whole. Father, you have made us new. It is not about theological know-how or X, Y, Z. 
It is about your death, burial, and resurrection. It is about acknowledging that you drunk the cup so we didn't have to. Be with each and every one of these people. Be with these men and women. Be with these children. I pray that you would guide them and protect them, restore them and renew them. I pray that the peace of the Lord would fall on them. But, Father, I also pray for conviction. Not to be right, but because you're worth it. You had no reason to do what you did, yet you sovereignly did it to, in order to have relationship with the creation. You are not a liar. You are not false. I thank you for each and every one of these men and women. Bless them and be with them in Jesus' mighty name.